welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is one of the leading practitioners of the uniquely American genre of the blues. He has been called a torchbearer, which is in this case, a completely deserved, albeit lofty title, but you live up to that title, Joe. And uh, it is a thrill to have Joe Lewis Walker here on Great Minds. So welcome, Joe. Thank you, Matt. Great to have you. So Joe, I, I know you spent a number of years uh, with the Spiritual Corinthians Gospel Quartet. And there were so many places to begin, so many incredible icons of music who you've played alongside and with. Uh, but I'd love to start, Joe, by uh, looking at that time you spent there with the Spiritual Corinthians and sort of where the blues and gospel and the church all come together? Well, um, I, I think factually speaking, um, there were people before me who, 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 who really um, paved the way for that intersection that you're talking about, namely Ray Charles, um, namely Aretha Franklin, Sam Cooke, who, who crossed over um, from gospel to, to, to secular music, we should say. And, and, but I think where those two styles of music intersect is that they were a form of expression uh, for African-American people um, to, um, I won't say vent, but to express themselves in a, in a cathartic way. And you could take gospel where you're singing about your God, you know, uh, uh, life, life gonna get better in the hereafter. Whereas blues, which you talk, you may be talking about right now. You want life to be better right now, you know. Uh, so they both intersected, I think, in 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 the terms of being able to be cathartic for the people that were were um uh, who invented both forms. And the 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 I think where they also intersect is that they're uniquely American. You know, blues, you know, maybe the rhythm, as they say in, in Jamaica, the rhythm, the rhythm came from Africa, but the music, it, the, 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 the I, I believe, in my humble opinion, the, the genesis of blues is the Western tempered scale and African rhythm. You put them together and you get blues, you get gospel, you get th these, you get soul music. You get you get rock and roll, you know, because the, the, you don't write down rhythm. A lot of coming from Africa now, people write down rhythm. You know, you, four bars or four to the floor and all that stuff. Six eight, twelve eight, all that. But in Africa, they didn't do that. <laughs> you just played, okay, and you played. And rhythm comes from a heartbeat. We all got a heartbeat. With and with soul music, soul music is like gospel and blues mixed together with rock with the rock and roll rhythm you know so it, it, it's all that mixed in one and i i believe that uh it's a great form of it, it is a great platform to express yourself you know now it was a time where if you played gospel you couldn't play blues if you played blues you know it uh, but nowadays I think with the advent of people like I talked about, Aretha, Sam Cooke, people who had, had crossed over and, 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 and I think it's a little bit more acceptable. Um, I, I've, I've made 30 albums since, since I came back from playing gospel. And of the 30, I'd say 20 of them had gospel groups on there with me. <laughs> and, the, and the other 10 had people who sang gospel singing with me. <laughs> you know, it's such an interesting area. And you mentioned Sam Cooke and Aretha. We had Darlene Love uh, on Great Minds, who also grew up singing in the church. And I think people today don't really know that history, that there was a very solid, strong divider between what was called secular music and gospel, and some people called secular the devil's music. And as a lot of young performers, people like Sam Cook and Aretha, who you mentioned, you know, literally had to go to their parents, both cases reverence, and seek permission to perform non-gospel music. That was a very big move. And crossing over today, people think crossing over from one genre to another, but back then, that was a much bigger divide. 
Yeah, yeah. Back then, it was you know, it, 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 you 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 hit the nail on the head, so to speak, and, and it was also the thing of if you went, if you crossed over, you couldn't cross back. You know, now it's it's it it people are are a little bit more, um, I won't say lenient, but a little bit more tolerant with um, success. Just to be honest about it, you know, success is success. You know, and so who, who, who in their right mind is going to say that Aretha Franklin can't sing gospel? And sing and, and sing. I say a little prayer for you, or respect. You know, respect is not a devil song. It's a song talking about respect. Otis Redding wrote it, and he wrote respect for a reason. <laughs> Coming from Macon, Georgia, he wrote it for a reason. You know, <laughs> and, and so and, and with Sam Cooke, you, you have the same thing, and so with Aretha, you have the same thing. And here's the the to me two of the biggest groups or, or, or individual entities that really blurred those two lines was Sister Rosetta Tharp and the Staple Singers. Those two, because the Staple Singers had hits in both genres. Right. I mean, huge hits. And, and, and when they, there's that saying, preaching to the choir. You know, I knew Pop Staples. I was you know, fortunate enough to meet him. I think that Maybe the reasoning behind him doing more secular style things was he could reach people and, and have them maybe come back and check out some of the stuff that they did in the church, you know, because I believe like Mavis and a lot of people, when they say the devil's music, I, I didn't know the devil had no music. From what I understand, I never heard the devil sing no songs, you know, so the devil ain't got no music. So when someone says the devil music, I don't know what, what they're talking about, um, you know. Just to be honest. And, and Joe, I'm glad you mentioned Pop Staples, who um, is such a seminal figure. And so many of us know Mavis, the surviving member of the trio of sisters. But talk about Pop, because he was such a huge figure in the evolution of American music uh, and doesn't get talked about enough. And it's someone else I left out. And, and I would be remiss not to mention Thomas Dorsey, Thomas A. Dorsey. Uh, because Thomas A. Dorsey and Pop Staples were very unique in the context that they both played blues before they played gospel, okay? So, and, and, and Mississippi Fred McDowell, all those older guys, Sunhouse, Sunhouse was a preacher, you know? I mean, I, I know a lot of people get really excited. Oh, Robert Johnson was this genius. And Sunhouse is the father of the blues. It's Sunhouse, Eddie, this is the man. Everything else emanates from him. Everything, as far as I'm concerned, you know? And I think if you ask Muddy Waters, if you ask Alan Wolf, if you ask any of them, you know, they would say Sunhouse. Robert Johnson would say that, <laughs> you know? But when you hear Sunhouse, you hear it all. You hear John the Revelator. You hear laughing in my face, you know? you know, skinning and grinning and laughing in my face, which means somebody's got two faces, if somebody don't know what I mean, you know? But when you hear John the Revelator, I mean, you can't hear that song without becoming emotional, if you're someone like me. Because if you come out of church or if you're going to blues, it doesn't make any, any difference. He does it the old way, no instrument. He sings it. Like my grandmama and we say, my great grandmother. And I know exactly what he's talking about. I'm not talking about singing John and Revelator to be in a million dollar bus. I'm talking about it's a cathartic thing for me. When I hear that, I hear my, I see my grandmother. I, I, I know what they went through. I know exactly what he's talking about. Because when I was a kid, I had to read those passages to my grandmothers. Because they were not from Harvard University. But they knew a little bit about the Bible. But those passages, they would want read to them over and over again 
in their times that, you know, when they was feeling weak and what have you. And John the Revelator is in the book of Revelations. And the book of Revelations is, <laughs> it's the last book in the Bible. Any, any last chapter is going to be, it's going to be the, <laughs> we're wrapping it up. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. all, all the older people look for a better day in a better place. Don't you mind fever granting in your veins? Don't mind fever granting in your face. Yeah, just bear this in mind, a true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind fever granting in your face? You know your mother will talk about you. Your sisters and your brothers too. Joe, I want to talk more about a lot of the icons of music, many of whom you knew and worked with. I guess you and Buddy Guy are really the last two bridges to that. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, that I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't even do. You know, put myself on a on a on a level with people like Jimmy Johnson, Billy Boy Arnold is alive. Uh, it, it's a lot of older guys way ahead of me. So I I I, I gotta. Um, respectfully say that you know um maybe they don't work as much because they're not the flavor of the month right now you know um but those guys seal johnson still alive you know i mean and, and they're very they're all very viable i know i'm forgetting somebody and um I, and i apologize for that but um compared to seal johnson i'm a young buck you know compared to to, to i mean his brother jimmy johnson turned 90 years old and it's still recording, you know, Billy Boy Arnold, they just let a book out about him, you know, uh, so, and there's a few other people that I'm missing, which well, I apologize for. One of the bridges to the past, let, let's, let, yeah. can we agree on that? Yeah, yeah, I'm one of them, right, I can enough. agree on that. But, but let's, yeah. but let's talk about, uh, about you a little bit, Joe, uh, give or take around eight years old, you pick up a guitar, born in San Francisco, uh, and uh, at a very young age, uh, you start to show real talent. Were your parents supportive of your passion for music? Very supportive. That's that's why I got into music. My father coming from Cleveland, Mississippi. My mother coming from Little Rock, Arkansas. My grandmother, Indian. My my mother's mother. My father's mother, um, you know, from Mississippi, hard times. And uh, they're all you know converging to um, you know find a. a a better place to live, you know, with that they had better chances um, than the ones that they had in, in at the time in, in, the, in the various places where they were originally from. But what they didn't do, they didn't leave their music there. They brought their music with them. You know, just like when people say, well, Chicago blues, Chicago blues. I love what B.B. King said. B.B. said, Joe, Chicago blues ain't nothing but a bunch of guys in Mississippi who moved to Chicago. <laughs> and they invented it. <laughs> Okay, but but they, they was playing the same blues in Chicago in Mississippi. They was playing in Chicago. Only thing different was the recording studios. Okay, and the amplifiers and, and Muddy turning it up and, and, and amping it up. But they they're playing the same thing they played on Chess Record with, with Sam Phillips. You know, in fact, the Sam Phillips on that stuff was way funkier than the stuff they did on Chess. But you know, you, you look at things moving forward, and I think number one. All the guys, you know, like the Wolf and, 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 and Muddy and them, they come from the same area my father come from, Delta. All of them went points east, west, north, east, west, north. Right. <laughs> Are you get me? Yeah. <laughs> They've well, been it, already been south. Yeah, okay? in, search of, in search of jobs, industrial Chicago, Detroit. Well, let's, let's be honest Detroit, now. Yeah, in, 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 search, in, in search of fairness also. Yeah. Okay, in search of fairness. So, so let's let's talk about that because the blues speak to the heart, and just as my people, the Jewish people, used humor to cover up and hide pain, black people use music to cover up and hide pain, and as a vehicle for expression. I find it incredibly ironic. We were watching last night uh, one of the big music award show and, uh, and Tyler, the creator, did an incredible performance. And if you look today in America, 
you can still argue that black people lead culture, that white people want to follow black people culturally, but the playing field for black Americans, and we're getting a little hard hitting quickly here, is still so not level. From where you sit, you know, and you reference looking for fairness and looking for opportunity, do you think, Joe, things have gotten better or have things gotten worse? It feels like things have gotten worse the last four or five years. Well, you, you know, just like you were, uh, my opinion is just as you were talking about the intersection of gospel and blues. Well, now I think there's the intersection of politics and art. And, and, and I think that's the poison pill. My personal opinion. Okay. My, it can, it, 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 sometimes it doesn't have to be, there can be good things sometimes, but nine times out of 10, the politics are there to divide. Music is there to, to bring people together. Politics is there to bring people apart. And so we've, we've been in, and you're old enough to remember this, you know, I mean, uh, 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 a political campaign would start maybe a year before, maybe six months. Now it starts the minute after somebody doesn't get a, and, and, and the more um, vitriol, the more, the, the, the more shocking a person can be now, it seems the, the more people seem to be following, following them and acting upon those, those things. And with the advent of the internet uh, to, to magnify every little thing that everybody could or couldn't have said. So to answer your question, I, I, I think things have gotten better and worse. And, and I know that's, that's sort of a wimpy answer, but that's the way I see it. Yeah, no, it's uh, uh, just a minefield of a subject these days. All right, so let's yeah. do you, Joe. Uh, can we go back and talk about a friendship uh, with Mike Bloomfield? I know that you and Mike were close and that that was sort of a critical moment in, you know, the formulation of what would become Joe Lewis Walker, the musician. Well, well, you know, Michael was, was one of the people that was, was uh, very instrumental in helping me uh, um to grow up so to speak because you know um i i think and and a, and a lot of i think a lot of musicians learn this um you have this pie in the sky idea of what the music business is and or, or what individuals who are in the music business like or or you know you're going to get your big shot and you're going to hit the big time and you blah, blah 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 and there's there's so much more to it and uh I met Michael when I was about 17 and a half, but I met Michael through a, a gentleman named Johnny Kramer, who we, 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 who was a great piano player, rest his soul. And we, we were in a, a little band together. And Johnny's cousin, Barry Goldberg, played with Michael Bloomfield. And so one thing led to another, and, and me and Johnny lived in a nice house in Mill Valley. And Michael started a band called Electric Flag. He was quitting Butterfield Band. And he'd moved to Mill Valley. And to make a long story short, he brought all the Electric Flag to live with him and something happened where he got basically ejected from his own house. He just couldn't live with all those people because Michael was an insomniac anyway. So he, he really couldn't, that's one of the reasons he couldn't do what he did. And that's one of the reasons he sometimes self-medicate just to be honest about it. So um, I met Michael in a part, part of my life when I left home at 16 and um, I was um, thought I was a hot shot guitar player. And I thought I could play the blues. I thought I knew what the blues was about and the people of the blues. And I played with some older blues guys. I played with Fred McDowell and, and Freddie King had been nice to me and, and Lil Fools and what have you. But, um, you know, at, at that point, we, we were all sort of crazy about Chicago blues. And so Michael did me a big favor. He sent me back to Chicago to play with uh, Otis Rush uh, a little bit later on after I, we had, I'd been living with him off and on. And uh, I got my eyes open very, very good because Chicago in 1969 was not for the faint hearted. Let me tell you, you know, and going from, I was standing in Evanston, catching the L train and everything to get to the South side. And then not knowing that, you know, the, the, the dynamics of the gangs and the dynamics of, of, you know, just man, you know, I mean, here I'm, I'm a cat from San Francisco, Oakland Bay area, San Francisco, you could walk anywhere. 
You could go anywhere. It, it wasn't like when I got there, I, I got a, a serious education. Uh, and, and, and my blues became more real. You know, by the time I got back to California, I was like, oh yeah, okay, I, I got a better idea of this here. You know, and so I came home from playing with Otis Rush a little bit, because Otis, sometimes he showed up, sometimes he didn't. Um, I came back to California and ended up some kind of way, um, I was went to a club and seen Muddy, and one of his guitar players was a friend of mine, Pee Wee Madison, uh, and, and, and make a long story short, Muddy told me, if, if you can get to Toronto, um, I'm gonna be open, I'm gonna be playing at a place called Old Col the Colonial Tavern, and uh, I'll let you open up the show. It was two weeks, two weeks thing. And so uh, I went to Detroit and uh, my friend, me and Rick Estrin, my friend Rick was gonna come, but Rick went back to Chicago cause he had a, a obligation to work with John and Lil John. And I took this band and went to Toronto and, and opened up for money for a couple of weeks and got another education, you know, cause I was only 19 years old. The gypsy woman told my mother, before I was born, you got a boy child coming, gonna be a son of a gun, gonna make pretty women jump and shout, then the world wanna know what this all about, but you know I'm here. Let's talk about uh, Muddy a little bit, such a seminal figure. There's a great clip, uh, about 45 minutes or so on YouTube of Muddy at the Checkerboard Lounge. Uh, and it was a night when Mick Jagger, Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood all showed up. And the reverence that they have for Muddy, you know, was so uh, uh, real. And you yeah. could tell how much it meant to them to be on stage with him. And as you know, all that British rock uh, from the early 60s, they all grew up on American music, whether it was blues like Muddy or Wolf yeah. or even before that, you know, Buddy Holly and a lot of those. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. they absolutely revered. And then they took our blues and the earliest uh, Stones records, you know, they were all covers of great American blues tunes. Not a lot of people that we can talk to today, Joe, knew and work with Muddy. Could you talk about your remembrances of the great Muddy Waters? Well, you know, I, I tell everybody that in another lifetime, uh, Muddy was, was an African king in my mind because he was just so even keeled with everybody. You know, um, it's no mistake that Muddy Waters bands produce so many people that went on to be giants. You know, Lil Walter, Jimmy Rogers, Pine Top Perkins, Junior Wells, uh, just on and on and on. Uh, 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 and then even what Muddy also did was no matter who you were, black, white, Hispanic, didn't make no difference. If you played the blues, Muddy would accept you. So when he got guys like uh, uh, Paul Asher, rest his soul, and, 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 and Jerry Portnoy, and, and, and Bob Margolin, um, he really, really um, let them live out a dream. And, and I'm sure they all would say that. Now, it, it, I, I don't mean a dream in the sense of, you know, buying a million dollar tour bus and having a, a $5,000 Armani suits and, and $1,000 uh, shades. I'm not talking about that dream. I'm talking about the dream of being able to express yourself in your music with one of the people that invented it. You know, that, that's a legacy, that's history. That's really, that's, you creating something. You know, you, you got your name right there. And see what Muddy did, Muddy had sons. If he liked you, Bloomfield was one of his sons. Johnny Winters was one of his sons. He just, come here, son. Mick Jagger was one of his sons. He loved Keith. Money just was, you know, and you 
you you you twist it a little bit to BB King. BB was the same way. If you played the blues, if you if you reached out to him, he would reach to you. It, 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 he never. What I liked about those guys, to be honest, was they never said, "Well, you know what? This is our music, and you can't play it. This is not. You can't be." I, I remember. <laughs> I, I think it was Keith said. Keith said he he went to went to Chicago the first time when they cut twelve times five. I don't know if it was MT Matt Murphy or somebody. You know, because brothers gonna brothers gonna test you and ask you know what you're doing. He said, "Well, hey man, what you want to play like me for?" And, and, and I think he told him the, the smartest thing. He says, I can never play like you. He says, I just love the music. You are right. You know, in other words, the, the English guys, the music reached them. When John Lennon first came to America, they asked him, what do you want to see? He said, I want to see Muddy Waters. 500 press people said, where's the Muddy Waters at? John Lennon said, you stupid Yanks, you don't even know your own heroes. That's the truth. Right. They knew more about it than the Americans. And there's a couple of... <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. It's a big star. I, I won't mention his name because he's a great guy. And he was talking to one of the English guys. And he said, man, we're so glad, you know, the Stones brought the blues to America. And man, we're so glad, you know, that you guys brought the blues back. And Keith just turned to him and said, man, it was here all the time. Y'all just didn't want to see it. We've yeah. been here. Muddy was here. Muddy said, well, hey, if it wasn't for my boys from England, my people at home wouldn't even know who I was. And I would um, echo that to a big degree, you know, uh, because the English guys never got caught up in who's the king of rock and roll. They never got caught up in, um, you know, a, a lot of things. They, the, the music just spoke to them. And, and all they did was play it with a different energy. Of course, the, the Rolling Stones doing Little Red Rooster is not going to sound like Wolf doing Little Red Rooster. But when the Rolling Stones was on Shindig, who did they bring on TV with them? Howlin' Wolf. The first time that an African-American blues man had been on national TV. And it took the English guys to do it. Now figure that one out. <laughs> I am the little red rooster Too lazy to crow for day I am the little red rooster too lazy to crow for day. Keep everything in the farm upset in every way. It is amazing, though. You're absolutely right. I mean, even to this day. Um, you know, there's still one original left in the Temps and one original left in the Four Tops. And when they play in America, they're playing in smaller theaters, thousand seats, 2000 seats, 3000. They play in London, they play at Royal Albert Hall. They play at the O2, which is like your new arena and your old hometown, the Chase Arena in San Francisco or Madison yeah. Garden here in New York. There's a greater reverence for American blues and American jazz in many ways in Europe and the UK in particular than there is here. And that's always been the case. I, I can never figure that out, why we don't appreciate ours well, as they do over there. I, I think, you know, um, and I, I, don't, I don't mean any, um, any uh, disrespect, but I think America likes its heroes as, as its reflection in the mirror. Right. And, and so, you're never going to hear about Red Cloud. <laughs> you're never going to hear about Red. You're going to hear Red Cloud's war. Oh, no, Red Cloud didn't have a war. Red Cloud defended um, the Oglala Sioux and in the, in, in the Indian Nation. Uh, and at one point, he, he did a, a darn good job of it. You know, <laughs> he, he, he conquered a third of his country back, you know, and this is this was his country. So let's face that one. But I think America likes its heroes, its reflection in the mirror. So the English didn't trip on that. They, they just, you know, they, they just wanted to learn. They soaked up Buddy Holly the same way they soaked up Buddy Guy, you know? And, and, and within, when you get to America, it begins to be a different thing. And 
Lord knows I can't tell you why. <laughs> I don't, yeah. That's yeah. above my pay grade. But you yeah. said something, and I got to touch on it. You said something to, about, you know, Jewish people in, in, in Yuma. Well, I, <laughs> my wife's Jewish. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen more Jewish cats play blues than be comedians. I'll put it like that. Mike Bloomfield, Barry Goldberg, Danny Cal, Roy Bloomfield. I could go on all night, all night. And so there is something that has to do with blues and suffering and people who have suffered that I think that that is the thing that brings the two together in, when it comes to, to that yeah. particular thing right there. And that's why I, I believe Michael can play the blues so good. And it's bizarre because Michael was a trust fund baby, you know? So, you know, he chose to leave that. He chose to leave that and to be associated with Muddy Waters and, 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 and Robert Nighthawk and people like that. Fantastic. So we talked about Mike and I'm glad we got to talk about him. And then another seminal moment for you was the 85 New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. And something happened there that led you to rediscover the blues. What, what was it that went down in New Orleans that year, Joe? Well, well you know, I've been playing gospel for 10 years. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I just tell everybody I'm a restless soul musically. I mean, you listen to the 30 records that I've made. None of them sound the same. You look on the cover, somebody told me, one kid that followed me on guitar, he says, you know what? He says, you know, you don't have the same guitar on any cover. He says, why aren't you like, B.B., do you name your guitar Lucille or Albert King Lucy? Or, and I told him this, and I feel like this. A guitar is a piece of wood and some strings. Nothing comes out of the guitar. Only thing that comes out of the guitar is what comes, what you put in it, what's in your heart, what's in your hand, what's in your soul. That's the only thing that comes out of it. And it's the same with music. You can be a blues musician and play jazz you know, and still keep your blues identity. A lot of people don't know B.B. King could play fluid jazz. He grew up listening to Django Reinhardt. So you listen to him. He didn't play it because he got known for the style he played. Chuck Berry could play all those sweet Nat King Cole things. He could play it. Beautiful. You see him doing it in that movie, Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll. You know, but he didn't because the rock and roll that he invented, it was for the masses, for the people. You know, the, all that esoteric kind of BB told me once, he said, Joe, you, you know, the, the reason you're sort of successful is because your music's inclusive. He said, all that exclusive stuff, that's for the, that's the sound of one hand clapping. And that's what it is. Fantastic. So, but talk about, give me, let's go back to that New Orleans festival that, that after that, you you know, things change for you musically. Well, I, I was just, you know, I, I what happened was I came back, um, I, I, I um, finished, I was just finishing, um, uh, I went back to school, I wanted to get uh, my degree, and, and, and uh, I got a call from a friend, and he says, the Mississippi Delta Blues Band is going to go to Europe for two months, would you be the guitar player, one of the guitar players? And I had a choice to make, finish this college thing I, I wanted to finish, or go on tour. So I got lucky. They let me use go on tour as independent study so that I could use that as a thesis to finish my schooling. See what I'm saying? So I got to be able to, to, to knock out two things with, 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 one, with one blow. So, um, and I was restless. Musically, I was just restless. You know, I, I went about, I felt as far as I could go right then with 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 the situation and no it was nothing wrong it was just that i felt like I, I needed another platform to express myself you know and then a year later your debut album cold is the night yeah. what a what a great record Night stream. 
Thank you. Thank you. Amazing. And uh, Joe, can, can I ask you about a couple of the other folks that you work with? Because mm -hmm. you've worked alongside with so many uh, icons of, of the blues and of American music. Can we talk a little about James Cotton? Well, uh, Jesus Christ. You know, what, what, boy, <laughs> uh, I just, you know, I'm probably the biggest James Cotton fan in the world. So anything I say about Cotton is going to be biased. I just put it like this. I've just never seen anybody that could take one harmonica and just play in about any key, known to mankind, and play great. I I, I have virtually never, and, and I would I would say you could line up a million harmonica players because it's about that many of them. And I don't think a one of them could say that they've ever heard James Cotton sound bad. In any condition he was in. <laughs> <laughs> you, it's impossible for him. To, he's like Lil Walter. I saw Lil Walter. He couldn't sound bad. Is that amazing? <laughs> I just love him. You know, I, he was a, a fountain of information. Um, not that educated, but you talk about in the school of life, Cotton was very well educated. A lot of people don't know when Cotton was a little kid that he was he was like Sonny Boy Williamson's number two. Go for boy. He go for this. Boy, go get that. Go get this. Go get. So Cotton learned at the, at the feet of master. You know, he, he he did. So when Cotton, you know, got his breaks with money and that, I mean, it, it was like, you know. Got my mojo working, but just don't work on you. Got my mojo working, but just don't work on you. And you also worked with some other incredible musicians, including Clarence Gatemouth Brown. Yeah, um, I, I, um, I, I made a record called Great Guitars, and I, I was fortunate enough to be um, uh, have a decent budget. So my my was I was gonna hire all my heroes. So I got a chance to hire Gatemouth, Buddy Guy, Otis Rush, uh uh, uh Gate um uh Taj, uh Robert Jr., um uh uh Maggie Murphy, uh, uh Steve Cropper produced it with me, uh Lil Charlie brought him along for the ride, um uh Bonnie Ray, yes, my, my my girl the redhead, and uh there's someone else I'm forgetting. But and I'm sorry I'm doing that, but um Scotty Moore. Jeez, how can I forget Scotty? It's my uncle. <laughs> so I got to hire my heroes and I got to write songs for all of them. And they trusted me with their music. But get my you want I'll tell you something funny. When I was uh getting ready to make the record, um, my manager at the time says, Well, Joe, you can talk to Gate Mountain Robert Jr., they're gonna be at the Blues Awards. At, which was the WC Handy Awards at the time. And so if anybody knows Gatemouth and Robert Jr., I mean, they, they, they don't suffer fools like, I'll just put it like that. So as soon as I walk into the door to the Blues Awards, there's Gatemouth and Robert Jr. sitting and I'm looking at them and they're looking at me and they just turn and start whispering to each other. <laughs> so I, I walked up and, 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 and I, I said, well, um, Hey, you doing, Robert? Hey, hey, son, how you doing, Gate? Yeah, what's up? And you know, um, and they both just turned me and says, "What you want us to play on your songs, <laughs> on your record?" And I said, "Well, I said, Robert, well, I thought you might play the slide guitar a little bit." And he just turned to me and said, "I hate the slide guitar since he's Robert Johnson's son." I thought he, but I didn't know they were just winding me up. They were just winding me up, you know, because I I toured later on. Japan with Gate Mouth and Robert Jr. After we made that record, I got one of the biggest thrills of my life. He called me at home. He says, Joe, I want you to make a record with me on my record. On my whole. And the biggest thrill was that that record was nominated for a Grammy. You know, so before Robert Jr. died, he was nominated. And he would have won, except BB outfoxed us all. <laughs> Because BB played on Robert Jr.'s record and BB played on his record. <laughs> so BB would have won either way. He's going to win either way. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Steve Cropper, but he produced a bunch of your records, didn't he? 
You see, he produced three records on me. In fact, he's producing a track right now <laughs> that we're doing. But that's where a, a big, uh, big uh, a benefit uh, a thing that we're doing. But um, yeah, I, I have uh, did three uh, things, that, and I, I, I brought Crawford also to the San Francisco Blues Festival as a guest of mine. To Chicago Blues Festival, I had him and Scotty Moore as my guests, um, and we had a, we had a great time doing that. And um, I, I, buddy guys, I had. On that great guitarist tour, I had Buddy, Cropper, Matt Murphy, and myself at Legends at the time. And then we did, uh, oh, Ike Turner was on the record too. We did um, Central Park. Remember they used to have the summer stage at Central Park? I think they still do. I had Ike, Scotty, Matt Guitar Murphy, and myself, which was my, I called it my million dollar quartet. You know? <laughs> Wow. And, and Joe, you, you're still touring like crazy, working all over the world. You've been played just about every every corner of the world. Is there a place that you particularly enjoy now where we're finally back out on the road? I know you just came off the road. Knowing you, I'm sure you're going back out. Um, is there a particular place that you've missed or a particular place that you really say, I can't wait to get back there? Well, you know, I, I, I could make something up and say da-da-da-da-da, but no. You know, I, I really, you know, when, when you, you, I've been fortunate enough to travel from China two times, Turkey, Asia, China, uh, Asia, uh, um, um, Lebanon, uh, Israel three times, so uh, Africa. So I, I would be lying if I said that I didn't have a, a, a great cultural experience in Israel as I did in Africa, you know what I'm saying? I, I had just as much fun in Lebanon as I had in, in, in Tel Aviv, you know, cause all the musicians in Tel Aviv were asking me about the blues in Lebanon and the cast in Lebanon was asking about the blues in, in, in Israel, you know, <laughs> cause they all heard, hear each other, you know, they, they, now with the internet. And like I was saying, the only thing came between everybody was politics. Cause all those people would be playing together. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great answer, actually. And can I ask you about one more of the of the legends who uh, I think you may have crossed with at some point? Uh, the great Willie Dixon. You know, Willie uh, was special, very special. You know, uh, pacifist, um, conscientious objector, uh, sawdust boxer in the time of Jack Johnson when they fought 20 something odd rounds, uh, which is bizarre. He went from boxing to being a pacifist. Uh, but Willie was a special person. I, I think a lot of people are. What's that saying? Some, some are called, but few are chosen. I, I believe Willie was chosen. It would, without Willie, there would been, it would be hard to draw a line from Muddy Waters to the Stones, to anybody, because they all were affected by Willie. You know, I mean, I know, because Willie told me when he first went to England that the Brian Jones came and picked, picked him up and brought him to their house to, to hear their first record with his songs on it. And, and he was like real nice. And so so you, you get that. And that's what that thing I was saying about the older guys. If, if someone played the blues, they would really, really, really supportive. You know, and, and to me, that is a quality that um, I miss, if it's anything. Maybe the blues is more Accept it now, maybe it's more money, maybe it's more this, it's more tech, high tech, but that quality that those guys had, uh, that nurtured guys like Keith and Ronnie, you know, that nurtured Jeff Beck and whoever that buddy guy nurtured, Eric Clapton and all that stuff, that is what I sort of miss, <laughs> I'll be honest. Just yeah. like Bloomfield nurtured me, 
you know, yeah. and it goes both ways, you know, and, and to me, that is the uniqueness of it. That is the uniqueness of it, you know, is that you, you can't, you, I'll tell you, the minute you start trying to put up anything on this here that ain't pure music, you, you, you will get um, stuck in uh, deep stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And, and you know, you mentioned Steve Cropper and, and Mac and Tom Murphy, both of whom is, uh, we know are in the Blues Brothers band. And I love that movie, how they really paid homage to great American icons of music, Aretha Franklin, but also the great John Lee Hooker. That's right, Hook, yeah. And that's, that's because of Danny and John, John Belushi. You know, I mean, they, they insisted. You know, I mean, they, they really insisted and their, their hearts was in the right place. Yeah, just a, ne ne never gets all watching that. So let's talk about your latest record. Okay, well, Eclectic Electric, um, it's uh, really, I, I made an album last year. I had an album released last year called Blues Coming On, which um, uh, Dion DiMucci, my friend, uh, wrote the song and he was kind enough to be on it. And, and several of my friends showed up, which was really good. But it was going to be a double album. But we, we just came to a, a agreement that nowadays people don't have the attention span for a devil out. It's just, everything is singles, which is bizarre because remember how we got away from singles in the sixties to do albums, you know? And now we've gotten back to singles. Uh, so um, Eclectic Electric was uh, some, a, a couple of tracks that were gonna be on that, few tracks gonna be on that record, but also some other tracks that were more eclectic, you know? Um, like I got a track on there that I did when I lived in France and with, with like <laughs> 10 Algerian drummers, African drummers and, and, and different things, uh, uh, personal songs that I wrote that fit with this, this here. And I was asked by, uh, uh, you know, I, I asked some friends and family and producers and musicians, what do you guys hear me doing on? And they said, well, well, you know, we like when you did a version of, uh, well, my guitar gently weaves, she made it worse, the real bluesy. We like when you did a version of uh, of uh, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding uh, for the Nick Lowe tribute record. And so um, I asked people to send me stuff. So they sent me a lot of different songs. And they, uh, I, I um, uh, re redid a few songs. Like I redid a, a Wadi Wachtel's uh, Werewolves of London. And Wadi was kind enough to play on it with me because that's my brother from another mother. And uh, I, I, I redid... Um, I won't say redid, but did a different take of uh, Danny Kochmore's uh, uh, All She Wants to Do Is Dance. And that's my buddy. And, and, and I also said, well, pick something iconic. A blues guy would never do. So I, I did, we did Hotel California. Wow. Bluesy. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I can relate to Hotel California. If you're from California, you have, you're a musician, you have checked in a hotel at two in the morning. There's nobody at the desk. You're tired, you get a gig, and there's some wise guy on the corner drinking a beer saying, man, you can check in, but you can't check out. You know, he's got something smart to say about every little thing you're doing, you know? So <laughs> I can really relate. So we, we did that and we did a lot of originals to go along with it. And that's why I called it Eclectic Electric. Fantastic. And we got a few guests on there. Waddy's on there and uh, uh, Baby Doyle. Uh, I can call it Baby Doyle, Doyle Bram Hall Jr. And uh, the B.B. King Blues Band is on there with me. And uh, Jimmy Vivino is on there with me. And a great young singer, we're talking about gospel and blues, uh, named Betty Smith out of New York. Uh, just a great singer. She sang a song with me um, called Lady in Red. Uh, and her daddy's preaching. And Betty, she's just a great, great artist. Anybody get a chance to listen to her, give her a listen. Fantastic. Well, I know you got a gig coming up, up in the Hudson Valley, and we're going to come up and see you. And uh, I see you got some dates booked already in 22, coming to Europe. And, and you keep busy, Joe. Yeah, well, tomorrow I'm the guest of my friend, Morali Coriel. Um, I'm, I'm going to be a guest of his down at the cutting room in New York City. So I'm going to be in the cutting room tomorrow with him. You know, I just came off tour last night. So I'm going to catch my breath and shoot down to the city and uh, have some fun with Morali and, and friends. And um, then we start back, uh, 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 you know what? If, if you wanna know where I'm playing, just look at joelewiswalker.com because it's like uh, right now, it's, it's sort of ramping up a little bit, you know, after the, the, the hiatus, the, the pandemic hit everybody so hard. 
everybody's sort of out there a little bit now and trying to, you know, as much as the CDC and the, and you know, the, the situations will, will allow us to be out there. Um, so we, we um, hope to come to town near you soon. <laughs> well, we all miss music and we're grateful to have it back. There's nothing as powerful. And you, you mentioned Buddy and Legends. I was lucky enough many years ago to see the acoustic reunion of Buddy Guy and Junior Wells at Legends. Oh man, uh, I wish I'd have seen that and, one. <laughs> and uh, there's a specialness to what you do anywhere, but Chicago, there's something extra special and all those great clubs, some of which are still around, Kingston Mines and some of those yeah. great, great rooms in Chicago. And But to get a chance to talk to you, Joe, I'm such a big fan. It's just an absolute joy, and I, I can't thank you enough. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, man. So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.